so again uh, we are at um, uh, Hosea and chapter 5 we will make our way through this chapter all the way to chapter 6 and verse 3 I won't read the whole of it at the beginning we will be making our way through but to just get us going I want to read the very last verse of the chapter so Hosea chapter 5 and verse 15 Hosea chapter 5 and verse 15 I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me the title of my message is God will discipline his unrepentant children and uh, it is part of the ongoing series entitled major lessons in the minor prophets having already seen who the minor prophets are we have begun the journey in the first minor prophet and that is Hosea We've talked already about how he was told to marry a promiscuous woman as a witness against Israel's idolatry. We've gone on to see how God used this shock treatment in order to show the way in which he relates to the unfaithfulness, or better still, the idolatry is a better term, the idolatry of uh, the people of Israel. He sees it as unfaithfulness. And Hosea's experience more than put this reality in bold relief. But also, it was to show how he disciplines his people and then the way in which he goes on to restore them. Well, that's what we've been seeing. And then from that picture, he went on now every so often to speak in direct terms uh, we saw that in chapter 2 we saw it again in chapter 4 and that is in very in, in a very big measure continuing as we go into chapter 5 and 6 and so on the the picture has been used the 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 blow has has hit between the eyes and now there is the lord immediately responding or relating to the situation and we notice in chapter 4 that basically he was saying i've got a controversy i've got a quarrel i've got an issue with the people of israel with with my people and basically the issue was that they were living in sin in terms of idolatry they were unfaithful to him and he opened that up. We saw it very much in chapter 4. In chapter 5, all the way to the beginning of chapter 6, we have him now particularly dealing with the consequence of that. And the consequence is that I will discipline them. It's not so much that I will punish them as in that I will discipline them. Now, Discipline and punishment have a lot in common. And it's the fact that there is a sense of pain that is inflicted on wrongdoers and it is in measure 
with that which they have done. So it is a form of uh, um, fairness. It's a form of, of justice that can be called punishment. Discipline has something of that. But discipline has a, a curative aspect. It's, it's uh, that so that this individual or these individuals may come back, that they may change their ways, that they may uh, be healed from their sinful ways. And um, it's true that any parent does both. It's true that any teacher in a classroom will do both because in one sense, someone has done wrong, you, you do need to discipline them. You do need to punish them. But at the same time, you are aware that ultimately you, you want them to come back. You want them to, to begin to live properly as children in the home, properly as pupils or students in the classroom. It's uh, often that way as well in, in the workplace that you, you, you warn a, an employee once, you warn him a second time, and you take some kind of measure like suspension. And again, it's not simply that you want to punish, although there's some punishment there, but you want to discipline. You want this person to, to change the way in which they are acting in the workplace. Well, the word that we are using here is quite deliberate. It's not simply that God will punish his unrepentant people. It is that God will discipline his unrepentant people. He, he, they will feel the pain, yes, but it is in order that they might come back. Hence, at the end there, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. That's what God is saying. That that's what he was going to do as well to the people of Israel. Well, let's make our journey through this chapter and see the way in which he reveals this in this poetry that makes up Hosea as an entire um, prophecy but particularly this chapter. First of all, God makes the point that he is going to discipline all of them. He's going to discipline all of them. Look at the way he puts it here. Verse 1 and verse 2. Hear this, O priests. This is Hosea, or let's say God, speaking through Hosea to his people. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. I was going to comment on that, but let me just finish both verses first. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter. And then, but I will discipline all of them. Now, the people whose attention he is getting initially is that of the priests 
And as I said to you last week, they were in charge of the teaching ministry of the people of Israel. And consequently, the prophet is saying to the priests, listen, listen. But ultimately, the message goes up to the house of the king. And the reason is because uh, the, the king is the most secure. Uh, the king is, is, is the one who often survives when a, a nation is under judgment. If it's under judgment in terms of famine, or it's under judgment in terms of pestilence, or under judgment in terms of sword, the king is the most protected. But God here is saying that this judgment is for you. You, the king, you are going to suffer this. Why? Well, it's because you are the one who has led the people astray. Hence the phrase, you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. You can be sure that as a king goes, so goes the people. As the leaders go, so go the rest of uh, their followers. It's inevitable. And so when leadership begins to go into idolatry, what do you expect? The rest of the people will also then go into idolatry as well. In fact, that statement in verse 2 is basically saying that this is the reason why this sin has become so deep that, that you, you can't fish it out. He says, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter. Deep into slaughter. It's like in a nation... When it becomes evident that uh, the, the leaders of the nation, the president, the vice president, members of parliament, ministers, and so on, uh, are corrupt. They themselves are getting money um, in the wrong way. The junior officers, you can't stop them. It, it, they know this is now the day to make a killing. Because up there it's happening. Surely nobody... The, the big guys that I'm giving money to, there's no way they're going to come around and bring punishment and, and suspend me or expel me from my job. There's no way. And therefore, they also now become very stubborn looters of finances. Well, basically, that's why God then says, I will discipline all of them. From the bottom all the way to the top, I am coming with a form of discipline that does not spare anybody. And we know the kind of discipline that came. <clears throat> God sent the Assyrians. And when they came, they, they took everybody into captivity. They, they didn't just kill the soldiers. They, they, they didn't just destroy property. They, they also took everyone into captivity. I will discipline all of them. Now mind you, by this time it hadn't happened yet. So this is figurative. This, rather, this looks like a dream. Uh, anyone who's a stubborn sinner is thinking, how? How, how will I, uh, a king, in, in the protection that I have in my palace, how on earth will I 
come and suffer this. But God is saying, I'm going to do it. We have the benefit of hindsight. It has already happened. And we are able to see from actual recorded history that the people of Israel, together with their king, were taken into captivity. Now, the reason why this is going to happen is what we see in verse 3 and verse 4. Uh, the first reason is that because God can see all their sins. He can see what they are doing. Even what they are doing in secret, he is seeing it. And number two, it is because, as we already saw in chapter 4, because they don't know him. They don't know God. That's why they are living like that. They don't really know the Lord himself. Let's read verse 3 and to verse 4. And notice the play with I know, and then verse 4 ends with they do not know. I know they do not know. I know Ephraim <clears throat> and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the wall. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of wardom is within them, and they know not the Lord. That's why I must finally just punish them. On the one hand, I am seeing everything. I am God. With respect to ourselves as human beings, we can hide things from one another. For instance, thieves go out at night. Why? Because visibility is more difficult. And so they are able to get away with so many things that they would not otherwise get away with during the day. Well, uh, with respect to uh, hiding things in cell phones, it's the same thing. We, we put pins on our cell phones. Why? So that other people cannot easily get access and know what is happening there. So a person can be with a lot of pornography on their phone and nobody seems to know what is going on except God. Except God. Because with God, darkness is as good as light. With God, pins. What are pins? Nothing. He sees all things. And that's what he was saying to the children of Israel here. That you, you might hide from one person or the other what you are doing. But for me, what you are doing is in broad daylight. Israel is not hidden from me. Your wardom, as he puts it here, is so obvious that to me, Israel is defiled. And they've gone so far in their ways, God says, that it's difficult for them to come back. It's difficult for them to, to reverse their steps. It's they, they, they are gone. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. Now, you know, if, if you are a person who uh, has not gone into a wrong relationship, 
it's easy to say to somebody who's going to wrong with him, come on, just, just cut it off. Just cut it off. Eh? You know, it's not helping you. Cut it off. But the person who has gone into that relationship, unfortunately, they tend to, to have invested so many things there. They, they've put in their money. They've uh, put in their hearts. They've uh, put in relationships with a number of other people. They've got so many other things that are, are also there that they, they discover that they are so intertwined that it has to take the kind of measure that uh, Jesus spoke about when he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right arm causes you to sin, cut it off. It's, it's, it's that hard. And basically, that's what he's saying here. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. Whatever is involved in the cycle of idolatry, he says, the spirit of wardom is within them. It's almost like it's a demon that has possessed them. And they know not the Lord. That's the punishment. Rather, that's the reason that is there. And friends, ultimately, 2,000, 3,000 years later, in the New Testament, we can say exactly the same. God hasn't gone blind. God still sees everything about our lives. He sees what's on our cell phones. He sees what we do at night. He sees everything. The way in which we relate to people in secret. He sees all those things. God sees it. He sees if our hearts have gone after other things. He sees it. He knows why we don't read our Bibles anymore. He knows why we don't read, uh, rather pray alone or with the family anymore. He knows the real reason. What the thing is that has taken away that time. He knows the idols which are in our lives. He knows. This God knows what it is that has now become the main thing that drives you. He knows. Other people don't, but he knows what causes the priorities that are now your priorities. He knows all that. He knows why you are so cold towards him. He knows. But ultimately, what he knows is that you don't know him. That's what he knows. That this is all coming out of a failure to appreciate the God who is. But let's hurry on because um, there are two other portions before we get to, to the end here. Uh, in fact, three. One is now the actual statement of the discipline. The actual statement of the discipline. And the discipline that is being spoken about here is one that is referring to as a stumbling or a falling. Uh, in fact, it's one step before a falling, but it is nonetheless a painful experience. And this is the way he puts it in verse 5 to verse 7. The pride 
of Israel testifies to his face. Now, uh, commentators, they have a lot of possible explanations, but one possible explanation that they give, which I think is a possibility, but you know, is not necessarily the final word, is that this pride has to do with the fact that Israel is aware that an outside enemy is coming, but does not have the humility to turn to its sister, which is Judah. As I said, Israel is the ten tribes, and then Judah had the other two. To turn to the other and say, guys, come and help us. Come and be with us. So pride is that which was stopping them from doing so, and it was all over their faces. And because of that, Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Okay, so that's talking in terms of the effect of falling. But he also adds, Judah also shall stumble with them. In other words, it's a matter of time. Because Judah will soon follow the way in which Israel is going in idolatry. And consequently, the same is going to happen to them. Now, that second part is true, that Israel went, and Ephraim is but one of the tribes of Israel. It was one of the northern ones, and because the, the enemy Assyria was coming from the north, Ephraim was going to be one of the very first to fall before the others fell. And so Ephraim will be mentioned quite a number of times along the way. But the point there is that once the northern kingdom is taken, the southern kingdom, which was smaller because it was just two tribes and had Jerusalem as its center, instead of them remaining faithful to God, they also were to go into idolatry and uh, a further um, empire, the Babylonian empire, was going to come and finish them off. Okay, so it speaks about the fact that they will go with their flock and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find him why he has withdrawn from them. Now that verse, together with the end of this uh, chapter and the beginning of chapter 6, those two are very important. Because the actual first act of God in discipline is not physical. It never is. The first act of God in discipline is a withdrawal. He withdraws his sensible presence from his people. And basically, that's what he did to the people of Israel. And therefore, even when they would come with their sacrifices, which is what he talks about here, with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord but they will not find him. So even when they now go to offer sacrifices, the, the, the heavens are like brass. They are calling out to God because an enemy is coming. God is not listening at all. He has withdrawn his presence. They will not find him. He has withdrawn. Why? Well, there it is, verse 7. They have dealt 
faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. So they've gone off into idolatry completely. They have as well intermarried, they have brought children that are no longer actual children of Israel. He's saying in the end, I've withdrawn from them, completely withdrawn. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord and he has withdrawn. Well, brethren, we are all constantly applying this so that we are not just watching a film, but we are seeing the application to ourselves. And it is true that the first step that the Lord takes when a child of God is stubbornly continuing in sin is to withdraw his sensible presence. In other words, <clears throat> you begin to go through a period of spiritual dryness. Real spiritual dryness. You try and read your Bible, it's, it's not what it once used to be. <clears throat> Zero. You, you try praying, same thing. Prayer is not real anymore. Why? Because God has a contention against you. There's a contention. There's a sin in your life that he has been pointing out, but you have been hanging on to it because it has become your idol. It's become your God. And consequently, he has said, fine. You continue that way. And church also suffers because you come to church, it's meaningless. You, you, you go back home, there's nothing you've gone through because God has withdrawn his sensible presence from you. He's looking for repentance, genuine repentance, as we shall see in a few minutes. But until that happens, you are in spiritual dryness. And of course, unfortunately, in the Christian faith, we blame everybody now. Hmm? Start blaming, no, church is cold. It's dry. It's no longer what it used to be. People are no longer loving and so on and so forth. You're blaming everybody. When the truth of the matter is, there's now a spiritual dryness in your soul because you are living in sin. Secret sin, yes, but your heart has gone after idols. And God is saying, I'm not going to play this game whereby now you just want to fulfill some activity so that you can get a blessing from me. Now that's when you come. Uh -uh. There's a contention that I have against you. A controversy that I have with you. Well, that's what he talks about here. And then <clears throat> appeals are made to uh, the prophets to sound the alarm, but also it is to actual soldiers to sound the alarm uh, that uh, the foreign nation or the foreign nations 
are coming against Israel. And Ephraim, as I said, being in the northern part, being the one that is likely to suffer first. Notice this in verse 8 to verse 12. Blow the horn in Gibeah, or Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Bethaven. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. <clears throat> but I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. The main point there that I just want to draw out is this aspect of sounding the alarm, or the trumpet, or the horn. Basically, it was meant to say, guys, life cannot continue as normal. An enemy is on the way. That's basically what it was meant to say. In other words, all our attention must now be drawn towards this. Now that's obvious. Because what used to happen in those days is that they used to have what were called um, city-states where an entire state would be within the, the wider perimeter wall and uh, <clears throat> at the main gate and also in certain places around the wall would be stationed the army, their soldiers, and they would take trumpets or horns, basically an actual real horn from an animal that is turned into a... Um, a vehicle of producing sound or noise. And when enemies were sighted at a distance, those sentries that were on that wall would then blow that horn. Depending on the kind of noise that is made, the people would know what it was all about. So if it was simply a call to worship, there was a certain kind of noise that they would make, or sound, sorry. But then, when enemies were coming, there was again another type, and this type is what was called the alarm. The alarm. So sound the alarm. And once you heard that, it didn't matter what you were doing. <clears throat> if you were going out to do your farming activities, you immediately stopped rushed back in order to go and pack and take your family and go and hide somewhere or something. If you had sons, they immediately went to be enlisted so that they could get the, the weapons and get themselves ready for war and so on and so forth. It, it, it's what you did at that time. You could not go along life as if everything was normal when this was sounded. And so that's the main point out of all this. It is to say, sound the alarm. Let people realize that we can't continue this way. Judgment is coming. 
judgment is coming. The day of desolation, the day of punishment is coming. He includes Judah here in those that are going to be punished. In other words, it's now everything together, the two phases of punishment that were going to come. So it is not just Ephraim, but also Judah. As he says in verse 12, I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. It is a matter of time. Well, finally, um, I'm getting a little bit behind schedule here, but finally, uh, there is the normal thing that backsliders do, and it is to seek help everywhere else except repenting and going back to God. And in this particular case, the, the, the people of Israel are warned that uh, wherever it is they're going to go for help, it's useless. They will soon meet their end. Look at this, verse 13 and 14. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. So that's where he first went looking for help. But he is not able to cure you. Or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. Basically, I don't want to spend too much time there. But the point is obvious because that's what happens also with a backslider. Uh, it's, it's always wanting to find other ways. Uh, let's use the example of a, a church that's backslidden and of course on the eve of the Lord uh, coming in in judgment. The effort to, is to say, well look, you know, numbers are, uh, are finishing in the church. We are getting fewer and fewer. Uh, what should we do? And often the answer to that question is to go to the world for answers. That's where people go, to the world. So they say, well, you know, uh, our services are dry. So we need to have skits, plays. You know, we need to include this. And, you know, it's, it's always social things. Because those social things will, will make people want to come. We need to, to um, turn down on doctrine. Instead of sermons, let's have talks. Let's have talks. Let, let's, let's be more inclusive. Sometimes of preaching, let's have interviews where we're just interviewing church members. How's life? You know? Maybe they might begin to feel more and more that you know, it's our church. And so on. And it's a complete departure from what does the Bible itself say? What is the church? And in the, the last effort, the very last effort, the church goes to the world for help, when actually it's the world that's coming to finish off the church. That's exactly what was happening here. 
It's the one that comes to finish off the church. Instead of the church recognizing that actually what we need is to repent and go back to God and have real church, real church, a place where there's real godliness and spirituality, where there's real holiness, where there's real brokenness under his word, real brokenness. Let's go there. Often, the backslidden church goes to the world. But even the one backslider, it's exactly the same thing. It's, it's the world in you that's caused the Lord to withdraw. And what's your first solution? It is more of the world. That becomes the first solution. It is more and more and more of these things. Perhaps this, this sense of emptiness will go away finally. So if I can just have more, it never satisfies. Absolutely zero. Zero. Verse 15, where we began. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. What does the Lord mean, I will return again to my place? Basically, it's the picture of a husband who has basically forsaken his wife. He's kicked her out of the home, or he has taken her back to her relatives, and he has come back home. Basically, that's it. He says, I'm not going out there until she genuinely, genuinely wants my marriage. That's when I will have dealings with her. Not what we saw earlier in uh, verse 6. With their flocks and herds, they shall go and seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. Why? They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. So that, that, that first round, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not playing the same game. Forget it. I'm not just going to be rushing in because now they are in distress. There's an enemy coming. And, no, 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 no. But the day they will genuinely forsake their ways and want to come back to me, they'll find me. At that point, they will find me. And this is what they do in verse, chapter 6, verse 1 to verse 3. That's why it ends in chapter 6, verse 1 to verse 3. This is the return. Come, Israel and Judah is speaking there. This is very futuristic, by the way. This is being written long before they even go into captivity, long before they even actually say it in captivity. But here it is in black and white. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will build us up. After two days, he will revive us. Now remember, this is a poem. So it won't be two days, okay, but it's a poem. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. 
His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. The point there is obvious. This is why the Lord disciplines his unrepentant children. It is because he wants to have this real relationship with them. Not this half-baked thing where their hearts have really gone after idols and then they are giving him a kind of piecemeal religion. No. He wants, when they, they've now gone out there, they're under captivity, they, they, they've got no access to him where they were meeting him in Jerusalem. Finally, they cried to him. Finally, they said to one another, come on, let's go back to the Lord. This is not the way we were meant to live. Let us return to him. Yes, he's disciplined us primarily that he might bring us back to himself. He's torn us that he might heal us. He struck us down that he might bind us up. It is for our good that we have suffered the way we have suffered. He will revive us. He will raise us up so that we might live with him appropriately. Well, I can quickly, as I close, apply that to ourselves. That that's why God withdraws his sensible presence from his people. It is that they might really seek him, really, so that there's a real Christianity, not this one that you keep in your pocket while you are chasing after idols, but that the Lord might be your all in all. That's why he afflicts us, even physically and providentially, especially when we are hanging on to all kinds of toys that we may finally just hang on to him and to him alone. And that's the reason why churches that backslide and go to the world looking for help and reduce themselves to social clubs, mere social clubs, finally just get closed down until those among them who genuinely repent and seek true church reform the church afresh and this time it is based squarely on a relationship with God fellowship with God where they prioritize the glory of God above all things come let us return to the Lord he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. In other words, revival. There's going to be a real revival in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, in our community, in our family. Let's go back to him. Let's go back to him. And that's really the appeal that is here in this passage. Yes, God punishes, but it's primarily he disciplines. He disciplines because he wants us back so that we can begin living the right way before him. 
Let us, each one of us, judge ourselves, especially as Pastor Swale will soon be coming to lead us in, in uh, the breaking of bread. Let, let's examine our hearts, as individuals especially. Because, friends, you know, they speak about backsliding, that w in falling, you don't fall far. In other words, you've already gone, but you've gone inside. You've gone. You're still coming to church, but inside you know the words of William Cowper, where is the blessedness that I once knew when first I met the Lord? Where is the soul refreshing view of Jesus and his word? What peaceful hours I once enjoyed. How sweet their memory still. But they have left an aching void that this world cannot fill. You know that that's what we're going through. So why again just go through breaking of bread and drink the cup and then go again? When you know that there is emptiness in your soul, the Lord has withdrawn. The best is to use a moment like this to say, Lord, there were those days. I know what I'm talking about. There were those days when I was near to you and you were near to me. Lord, forgive me for allowing career, children, money, sport, recreation, whatever it might be, to take your place. Forgive me. I'm coming back to you today. Restore me to yourself. The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me now to tear it from your throne and worship only you. Let's use that moment for genuine, genuine restoration until the Lord revives us. Come, let us return to the Lord. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Amen.